Good morning, everybody. We, uh, we shook things up a little bit, so while the, uh, while the offering is going around, I'm just going to introduce myself a little bit before I get you to turn in your Bibles. Um, but if you don't know who I, who I am, my name is Russell, and I'm the director of our youth ministries here at Harvest Bible Chapel. Uh, and it's a privilege of mine, an absolute privilege of mine to be able to share with you uh, God's word this morning. Um, with our youth takeover, we had over 30 students sign up um, to, uh, to serve you guys this morning, spread across both services. And so... I hope, uh, yeah, praise God for that. I hope you felt warm and welcome when you were giving high fives as you were coming in out of the cold. Um, high fives as you came in here, that line of high fives that wasn't planned, that was awesome. Um, and I hope you guys felt like you're on a sports team or something coming out of the, coming out of the huddle. And uh, it, was, it was great, it was awesome. And I was really, really excited to be a part of this youth ministry. Uh, the Lord has given us an amazing student ministry uh, between grade six to grade 12. Uh, we have 115 students uh, registered in our youth ministry, 70 of which average out every Tuesday night. And so it's, uh, it's pretty special and pretty awesome. Um, if you... Uh, Sorry, excuse me. Um, if you don't own a Bible this morning, or if you have a Bible, can you please turn it to Ephesians chapter six? If you don't have a Bible, throw it up in your or throw your hands up in the air, and we have students who would love to get one to you. And be careful, they're going to airmail it to you, which is what we do at uh, youth. I'm kidding, we actually don't do that, but they're going to bring it out to you. Um, keep your hands up. You want to turn again to Ephesians six. Um, if you don't own a Bible, this is yours to keep. Okay, here at Harvest Bible Chapel, we believe in the absolute authority of God's word. As we know, it's, it's profitable for training a man or a woman in righteousness. And so if you don't own one, this is yours to keep. Okay, take it, read it, and, uh, and see the transformation in your life as the Lord, as the God of this universe speaks directly to you through it. Um, this morning, we continue our series on the battle. And I just want to say, I hope that you have been equally as blessed and equally as encouraged through this series as I have, as Kai has been bringing us through each piece of the armor of God. So this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I don't know if it was, maybe you're like me when you're growing up in Sunday school and you heard about the armor of God, you thought you could be like this like sweet warrior. You know, you'd go around like slaying dragons, but instead of slaying dragons, you're like slaying devils or whatever it was. Like, I, don't, I was just infatuated and excited and fascinated with the armor of God, even to the point when I was like 18, 19 years old, I thought, how cool would it be to get it like tattooed in its spots so I can use it as like a conversation piece or like a, uh, a witnessing tool. Never did it, obviously, but... Uh, I was so fascinated with the armor of God. But I also, I never took the time to really digest it. You know, I never really took the time to see the significance and why Paul specifically named each piece the way he did. And maybe you're like me. Maybe, maybe you never took the time to see, well, why is it called the belt of truth? Why is it called the breastplate of righteousness? Why isn't it the, the breastplate of truth and the belt of salvation? And as Kai has been taking us through this series and going through each piece and seeing how specifically it would have been worn by the Roman soldier and how Paul likens their armor in battle to our armor in the spiritual battle, how, how the belt was the first piece. We know the belt, when we, when we study history and we study the Roman soldiers, the belt would have been the first piece that they put on. You know, the breastplate would have clipped into that belt. The sword sheath would have been on that belt. Even the footwear would come up the calf and it would strap into that belt. It was the first thing that went on and it held everything together, just like truth holds all these pieces together. We can't have faith 
in something that's not true, that's not strong enough faith, but because it is true, our faith can be incredible shield for us. It's no, by no mistake that Paul named it and called it the belt of truth, or how the breastplate protects us from the front and from the back, okay, guarding our heart. Because we you know if we take a blow to the heart, that's a lethal blow. But just as our righteousness in Christ, or better, his righteousness in us guards our heart from evil. And we can trust in it. And it's held together by truth. Again, it's by no mistake that Paul named it the breastplate of righteousness. And today we look at the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Helmets protect the head. Okay, if you're going into battle without headgear, it's a dumb move. You're going into war without protecting your head, that's bad news bears. Because you know, you get, you get a, a blunt object to the head or a blow from a sword, that could be a lethal blow, but the helmet protects that. And we wear our helmets as the protection given to us by God through Jesus Christ. Because it's the helmet of salvation and salvation is gonna protect us from the ultimate lethal blow. So it's no coincidence, again, that Paul calls it the helmet of salvation. But before we continue any further, before we dive into I hope you had enough time to turn to Ephesians 6. Before we dive into it, I just want to pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to speak to us powerfully from his word this morning. So let's pray together. Lord God, you are good. Lord God, you are holy, you are mighty, you are righteous. Father, so thankful that we have your word in front of us that you have preserved over this many years. Lord, where we can see you speak to us, we can hear you speak to us audibly through these pages. Lord, as we know that this is the written word of God, alive and well, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce through bone and marrow. Lord, pierce through our hearts this morning with the word that you have to give to us on salvation. Lord, the greatest gift that mankind has ever known that you have given to us by your grace. Lord God, I pray that our hearts are open to what you have to say about salvation, Lord God whether we are saved or in need of saving right now this morning, Lord, you can still speak to us powerfully from this word. And so we ask you to speak to us powerfully, Lord God. And we pray this in your name, amen. So Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, and uh, many of us by now have had this passage memorized because we've gone to it every week for the last five weeks. But starting in verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you will be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take the helmet of salvation. Um, growing up as a kid, I hated helmets. Couldn't stand them. They were dumb, they were awkward, they were uncomfortable, especially the ones that we had growing up in the 80s. 
okay? Put a picture up here. This is what we had to deal with. If you were in the 80s and you're an 80s child, you know my pain, okay? These are hideous looking things. Now, Ninja Turtles are kind of cool, so I would have been maybe okay if my mom had grabbed that one, but instead I just had a blue one and it was really dumb looking, and it's like at least 10 inches tall, and you felt like, I'm three feet tall and I had to duck to get out the garage because of how big this thing was. Helmets were annoying, but my mother threatened that I needed to wear it if I was gonna ride my bike. And if I didn't wear it, I'm gonna need more than a helmet to save my life. And I would push back, like, mom, it's so dumb, like, they're so uncomfortable. This one doesn't even have a shell on it. It's got straps through it, everyone's gonna make fun of me, I can't stand it. But she wouldn't budge. She said, you need to wear your helmet. I was like, fine, I'm gonna wear my helmet. I'm not gonna do the strap up, though. Anyone else do that? They go outside, they put the helmet on, fine, put my helmet on, see, but the strap's undone, walking out, thinking, hey, this is pretty cool. Got the helmet on, but the strap's undone. Just get to the bottom of the driveway and I hear someone yell from inside, do your strap up. Like, how did you know that? <laughs> I was like, fine, do the strap up. Make sure it's tight. If I can get two fingers in there, it's not tight enough. Any, any other parents do like the two finger test? So I was like, fine, I'll do it tightened up. Rode my bike off. As soon as I was out of sight from the house, I'd take the helmet off and put it on the handlebars of my bike and keep riding. And as I came back, as I was in uh, eye, eye, eye shot of the, of the house, Take the helmet off the handlebars, put them back on my head, strap it up, go and uh, go ride back to the house, put the bike in the garage, take the helmet off, walk inside, and immediately get grounded for a week. Because my mom somehow figured out that I wasn't wearing my helmet. She had her spies out there or something. And I learned a very important lesson that day. That lesson was something that I have to learn over and over and over again. But that lesson is mothers always know. Okay? They never, nothing gets by them. They always find out. But I tell you though, uh, the helmets, the struggle for me was real. I couldn't stand them. But the struggle is real also in the spiritual sense. And it's real in two ways. For some of us in this room here this morning, the struggle with helmets, and specifically with the struggle of the helmet of salvation, is we just refuse to put it on. Just like me, punk kid, I don't wanna wear helmets. That's not cool, man. I don't need that. Way too many rules for me, dude. Way too many rules. Salvation? Salvation means I need to be saved from something. What do I need to be saved from? I'm a pretty decent person. If God's a God of love, his wrath isn't going to come to me. I'm no murderer. I'm no grand theft autoer. <laughs> it's a word. Trust me. <laughs> I haven't done these horrible things. God's wrath isn't coming to me. I don't need that. Or maybe it's I can't take that helmet. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've, what, I've, what I've put people through. No one's forgiven me yet. What's gonna make me think that God's gonna forgive me? Maybe that's your struggle. You struggle to put the helmet on. Or maybe, for the majority of us here this morning, our struggle is forgetting that we have it on already. Our struggle is forgetting that we have it on already. When we face adversity in our faith, we struggle with things like, am I really saved? Like, can, can, I, can I trust the salvation of God? You know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I used to be really, really burdened with, with stress and with anxiety and with fear. And I haven't been burdened with that in months, but lately I've been backsliding, and I've been crippled with fear. I can't even go outside my door this morning, and it's been like that for days and days. I'm crippled to my bed. Am I not trusting God anymore? Like, has he left me? 
Is he ashamed of my unbelief? Is this unbelief? Am I disqualified now because I'm feeling this way? I, I, I found myself back in a sin that I promised I would never go back to. I swore I would never go back into that sin, but for some reason, I'm doubting my salvation now because I have gone back into it. How could I come back to this sin if I truly was saved in the first place? Maybe this isn't real anymore. Do either of these scenarios resonate with you? Whether you struggle to put the helmet on or you struggle to remember that you have it on, I know I've been in that second scenario and I've been in that second scenario many times. Maybe not the exact examples that I, was, that I chose to share, but you're thinking, you're sitting there this morning thinking, you know what, yeah, that sounds like me. Whether we find ourselves in the struggle of remembering we have our helmets on or putting them on in the first place, the struggle is real. It was real yesterday, it's real today, and if the Lord grants us tomorrow, it's gonna to be real tomorrow. We read earlier in this passage in verse 12, look at verse 12 again, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against you and me. Our battle is not against each other. Our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil, and they are not gonna stop. Satan has a relentless attack, and he does his very hardest and does a good job of convincing us that we are either naked in battle, we don't have it on even though we do, or that the battle doesn't even exist. So I want to speak to you this morning in relation to these two struggles. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in the first one, but equally as important, we're going to spend some time in the second one as well. The first point this morning, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I struggle to remember I'm wearing my helmet. I struggle to remember I'm wearing my helmet. Um, this one time I was 19, living in Mississauga, and I was riding the GO train coming back from Toronto. I was coming back from a concert. And I didn't have a car at the time, uh, so I would coordinate with my mother what station I'd be picked up at. And if you're familiar with the GO train, familiar with that system, uh, it was put in Clarkson Station. If you're not familiar with it, just bear with me in this. And uh, come back from Toronto, I called my mother and said, hey, uh, I'm going to be back at this time. I'm going to be at this station. Um, when do you think you can be there? Uh, essentially, I want to know how long I was going to be waiting um, because my mom had five kids and she was like taxi mom at this point. And so she's driving them all to, like hockey and whatnot. And, all over Mississauga, Oakville, and Burlington, and then here I am saying, hey, I need a pickup from the, from the train station. So I'm calling her. I just got my phone. This was my first phone I ever had. I had it for about, I don't know, a month now. And uh, calling her for, um, to pick me up, and she uh, starts going on about her day and telling me about what was happening at the flower shop that she owned at that time. And uh, in her conversation, I'm like, oh, um, we're at our stop, and uh, just about to get off, and I do instinctively what I do every time I leave a place or I leave the, our office or I leave um, a train or plane, a bus, whatever, and I pat myself down, okay, do I have my wallet and do I have my phone? And so uh, I'm patting myself and I'm like, uh-oh. And she goes, what, what's wrong? I'm like, I can't find my phone. <laughs> you know where this is going. I can't find my phone, I must have put it down somewhere. She's like, well, did you put it down somewhere? I like, I just said that, mom. I don't know where it is. She said, well, retrace your steps. So I'm looking for my phone. My friend's, looking for, my friend's looking for it. Like, we can't find it. All of a sudden, the door's closed. I'm like, oh, great. You have to pick us up at, Clark, at uh, Port Credit now. And she's like, what do you mean I have to pick you up at Port Credit? Like, how could you lose your phone? I was like, I don't know. How I can... And then all of a sudden, it hit me. Um, I know why I can't find my phone, Mom. She goes, why? 
I'm on it. And she's like, there's a pause, and then she starts laughing. I'm like, oh man, I'm a moron. My friend's like, you're a moron. I'm like, hey, you were fooled too, dude. You were looking underneath the seats just as much as I was. You didn't point to my hand. Don't give me that. And as bizarre as that sounds, and I promise you that's a true story, but as bizarre as that sounds, Satan uses the exact same sleight of hand trick. He's the exact same sleight of hand trick we're in the thick of battle. He attacks our faith, okay, to convince us that we don't have our shield. He bombards us with doubt to convince us that we don't have our belts on. And he attacks our assurance, okay, our assurance specifically in salvation by constantly bringing up our sins or reminding us of our downfalls to convince us that we don't have our helmets on, to convince us that we don't have our salvation, that we somehow lost it. So church, need, need I remind us what Paul says to his letter uh, to the Roman church? In chapter 10, verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not you'll, you'll only be saved on condition of you not sinning anymore but you will, bold letters, underscored, italicized, be saved. There's finality in the closing of that. There is assurance, there is a promise. Salvation will come to those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God is who he says he is and that he is able to defeat death because you know, he's the author of all life able to defeat death, and specifically in this case, able to raise Christ from the dead, victorious over death, victorious over sin, and leaving our sin, better yet, let's make this personal, leaving your sin in the grave. Salvation will come if you believe that. Why? Because God said so. It's that simple. Now, it, it, it is simple, but even though it's a simple truth, the enemy's gonna try to attack that any way he can. But Russ, I, I keep on doing this, I keep on doing that. I, 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 I'm really, really doubting this, I'm really doubting that. Okay, well, let me break this down a little bit more. Okay, the Bible talks about our salvation in three tenses, in three ways. It talks about our salvation in the past, our salvation in the present, and our salvation in the future, and uses these terms, justification, sanctification, and glorification, respectively. Okay, let's look at justification. If you're taking notes, this can be uh, like a sub-point under point one. I believe I'm wearing my helmet when I believe that I am justified. I believe I'm wearing my helmet when I believe that I'm justified. I want you to keep your finger in Ephesians 6. We're gonna come back to that, but right now I want you to turn to Romans chapter four. So turn back a couple pages, a couple books to Romans chapter four. Give you some context as to why we're turning here in Romans one, in the uh, letter that Paul is writing to the Roman church. Romans one, he's saying the wrath of God is coming to all who are evil. And who are evil? Paul says everybody. Okay, he quotes Old Testament. No one is righteous, not a single one. No one does good. 
Okay, he says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the wrath of God is coming to those who are evil, who are evil, all of us. Therefore, the wrath of God is coming to all of us. Now, he doesn't leave that there. Praise God that the gospel doesn't end there. Also, wouldn't be good news at all. And he goes and says that there is hope and that our hope is that in Christ and his righteousness, there's been made available to us his righteousness through our faith in God. We can have the righteousness of Christ with, through faith in God, and he gives an example with Abraham because these people would have known all about Abraham. Many of us know about Abraham through the book of Genesis. Maybe we don't, but this is what Paul says to, um, to the people about Abraham, starting in verse um, 18 of chapter four. It said he in hope, this is talking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice in verse 21, Paul says that Abraham was fully convinced that, he, that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that, God, that when God said, I'm gonna give you a son and I'm gonna make you great and you're gonna be the father of many nations. And Abraham's like, I'm like 100 years old, man. My wife hasn't been able to have kids for almost that long too. There's, I, I, are you serious? God's like, yes, I'm going to do it. And it says, Abraham was fully convinced. No unbelief made him waver. He did not weaken in faith. Paul says this three times about him. Did not weaken in faith, did not waver, fully convinced. What's it gonna take for us to be fully convinced that when God says you will be saved, he means it? Think about that for a second. When God says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, some audible confession, and you believe, truly, 100% believe that God raised him from the dead, raised Christ from the dead, bringing your sin upon him and his righteousness upon you, you will be saved. Perhaps we need to look at it this way, okay? So the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart, we will be saved. It also, if you look at it like this, could mean when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you are saved. Or let's make it personal. Let's say like in our minds or in our hearts, when I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart, I am saved. Paul says righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And he was raised for our justification. You see, the moment we accept Christ as Lord, whether that was last week or 40 years ago, we are, boom, stamped, approved in the eyes of God for eternity. You are justified. Doesn't mean justified to go on and keep sinning. 
That's the wrong understanding of justification. It is justified, meaning we are now in legal right standing before God because of the righteousness of Christ. Nothing we did earned that righteousness, nothing. So nothing we do is gonna unearn it because it was all done by God's grace. Jesus himself says in John 10, I give them eternal life, okay? And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So here you have Jesus saying, no one took them out of God's hand when they placed their trust in him. He gave them to me and no one can take them out of my hand. There are two people, two persons of God saying, nothing is letting my people out of my grasp if they place their trust in me. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are the property of the living God. No one is able to take us out of his hand. No one is able to take us out of God's hand. We are eternally justified forever, period. God will not let you out of his hand if you are an adopted son or daughter, a co-heir with Christ. You are not being let out of his hand. So I believe that I am wearing my helmet as a follower of Jesus Christ in the spiritual battle when I believe and remember that I am justified. Remember that you are justified. This is past tense. Remember that you are justified. Subpoint two, I believe I'm wearing my helmet when I believe that I am being sanctified. I believe I'm wearing my helmet when I believe that I am being sanctified. Sanctified, well, what does that word mean, Russ? It's a big word. What does sanctified mean? The definition I use, or I'm using, uh, I got straight out of BibleStudyTools.com. And it is the easiest, most straightforward, most clear definition of the term sanctification. And to sanct- it says, to sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. So for example, a pen is sanctified when it is used to write. Okay, Uh, glasses are sanctified when they are used to see better. In the theological tense, things are sanctified when they are used um, in the purpose God intends. So a human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. But this is where it can get kind of tricky, okay? This is where many of us can stumble, and this is where the enemy is very effective in convincing us that we don't have our helmets, that we don't have our salvation. Okay, think think back to the beginning of this message where I laid out a few reasons that we can doubt our salvation, okay? Whether it's uh, we return to old sins, or we've created new idols, or we are not trusting God, or, or thinking, am I failing as this so-called follower of Christ if I stumble into a former sin or addiction that I thought I had gotten rid of? Is God ashamed of me? Do I deserve his grace and forgiveness after having to ask for it so many times? Why am I like this? Why do I keep failing? Shouldn't I have stopped sinning when Jesus came into my life? Am I actually saved? 
And then we flip-flop back forth, back and forth, believing that we are saved when we aren't sinning, and that we aren't, and we think that we that we aren't saved when we are sinning, as if God like gives out this like salvation card, and as long as you are not sinning, you can hold on to that salvation card. But the moment you start sinning, he takes that salvation card away. So you better not be sinning near the end of your life so you can have that salvation card so you can go to heaven. Isn't that tiring? Like it's tiring saying that. Are you thinking like that? In those times, I urge you to first remember if you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. Then remember you are being sanctified. Remember, um, a thing or object or person is sanctified when it's used for the intended purpose of its designer. But sanctified is, is, is a past tense. We are, working out, we are living out our sanctification. From the moment we, we placed faith in Christ to the moment he calls us home or, or, uh, or returns, we are being sanctified. We are being made more into the likeness of Christ. Okay, think about that pen. The pen goes from designer's thought and then makes it and molds it and puts the ink cartridge in and the cap on and the back cap and the plastic and molds the plastic and then it's able to be used properly for its, for its glorification. Think back on your life. Okay, think back on the moment you confess Christ as Lord. Have you become more forgiving? Have you become, I don't mean perfect in this, okay? I mean, have you become more forgiving? Have you become more loving? Have you become more joyful? Have you become more faithful? Have you put more of your trust in Christ as the one sufficient enough for your trials? Are you believing more and more in the promises of, that the promises of God are true? Are you allowing more and more? Think back, yes, I might be struggling with this sin that's come up again, but you know what? I've seen God do an amazing work in my life from when I first placed trust in Him to now. This is your sanctification. God is making you more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But this is where the war is gonna wage all the more. And I think Paul says it best again in Romans chapter seven. You don't need to turn there. Where he says, so I find it to be law. Okay, this is Romans seven. So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man am I who is able to save me from this body of death. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is always a war waging between your flesh, which is your desire to sin, and your mind, which is your desire to serve and please God. But our problem is that we want that to, that we want that to be perfect right away. Okay, we live in a microwave culture, all right? We put our coffee in the microwave for a minute, and we open it with seven seconds left because we don't want to wait those last seven seconds. It's true, everyone has done it. Maybe it's not coffee, maybe it's a pizza pocket, I don't know. 
We then translate that into our own lives and we say, well, I want the sanctification process to work a lot faster. I want to stop sinning now. That's a great desire, great, great desire. But Paul's saying there's a war going on. Your members want to sin. Your body wants to sin, but your mind, which has been renewed, as Romans, Paul will say in Romans 12, your mind, which has been transformed and renewed, wants to serve and please God. That's a great thing. Continue that desire. Continue that want. But allow God to sanctify you, to work out that. Don't give the devil the satisfaction of his deception but give God the glory through your sanctification. Okay, don't give the devil the satisfaction of his deception, but give God the glory through your sanctification. But here's, here's something awesome. There will be, however, a time when we are with God and in the final tense of our salvation where we will no longer sin. We no longer will have to put up with this war battling back and forth. And that's in our glorification. Quickly turn to Philippians chapter three, verse 20. We will come back to Ephesians six, keep your finger there. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. Our third sub points under this. I believe I'm wearing my helmet when I remember that I will be glorified. Um, you'll notice that I've quoted or referenced a bunch of scripture here. Um, that's because God's word is full of the assurance of our salvation through Jesus Christ as those who have confessed and professed Christ as Lord. Um, on our website, when this uh, sermon goes online, there'll be a document that has a bunch of those passages and more. And through our small groups, we're gonna be going through uh, some of these passages as we look at the assurance of our salvation. But Philippians 3 Verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, oh, we're gonna get back to in a second. So but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Church, our citizenship is in heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our glory is. That's where our promise is, where one day we will sin no more and we will be in the presence of our God. We will no longer struggle with our flesh. We will no longer be cast into doubt and we will no longer question anything. But what do we do until then? Well, the very next verse, chapter four, verse one says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm, stand firm. Where have I heard stand firm before? Oh yeah, Ephesians six. So now you can take your finger back to Ephesians six. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The whole armor. We can't just take up one piece at a time. It's all or none. We get every single piece the moment we profess Christ as Lord. 
We might be convinced that we don't have it on, but we have it on from that moment. Take up the whole armor of God and stand firm. Take the helmet of salvation, or more literally, take the helmet that is your salvation. Remember that it is your salvation. Stand firm in the knowledge that you are justified. Stand firm in the knowledge that you are being sanctified. Stand firm in the knowledge that you will be glorified. Stand firm in that knowledge. Finally, our second point. Some of us struggle to even put that helmet on in the first place. As the worship team comes up here this morning, there are some of us in the room, when we look back at that first analogy, of the first analogy of the bike helmet, we just refuse to put that helmet on. We deny our need for a God. Okay, we deny our need for a savior. Maybe we come out here on a Sunday because a family member brings us. But when we come and we put that helmet on, we put it on, but we don't do the straps up. Okay, when we leave church, we take it off and put it on the handlebars. And we put it on when we're in the face of family, and we put it on when we're in the face of church, but we don't really wear it. We refuse to actually put it on. But this time, it's not our mothers who know. It's God of the universe who knows. And there are some of you this morning that are refusing to put that on. So what's stopping you from taking that helmet? Okay, what is stopping you from receiving from God his gift of salvation? Is it pride? Is it hurt? Have you been hurt in the past by someone uh, who, who uh, in the church or in your family where you thought, if that's Christianity, I want to have nothing to do with it. But what is stopping you? What is stopping you from believing? Remember, Satan has done a great job of convincing us that we are either naked in battle, but in this case, he's convincing us that the battle doesn't exist. He's convincing you that the battle doesn't exist. So I'm telling you right now, that battle does exist. The battle for your soul does exist. If you're on the fence this morning, this message is for you. Take the helmet of salvation. That word in relation to the helmet in Ephesians 6, 17 is unlike the take from the rest of the passage. Okay, in verses 13 and 16, the Greek word is analambano. Okay, that means like take up what's around you. So you're going into battle, take your weapons. This specific verse where it says, and take the helmet of salvation, the Greek word is dekomai. And it says, take what's in my hand as if you're receiving it, as if the general is standing in front of you and saying, here, take this helmet, this helmet that I'm giving to you. The God of this universe is saying, take my salvation for you. I'm handing it to you. I'm standing right in front of you. Here it is, take it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. You are so righteous. You are so amazing. Lord, and we, we are here in this room, whether we have been shrouded by doubt or surrounded by doubt in our own salvation. 
Lord, help us to stand firm in the knowledge that we are justified the moment we professed Christ as Lord and believed in our heart that God, you raised him from the dead, gave us his righteousness and gave our sin to Jesus Christ. We are justified and we are not leaving your hands. Nothing is gonna take us out of your hands, Lord, but you are sanctifying us to the point of glorification. Lord, you are making us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ day by day. Help us to remember to, to confess our sin, Lord God, but to not be, not, not be held down by it. Lord, to know that your grace is far greater. Not that we keep on sinning so that grace can abound. By no means should we do that. Lord, help us to not hold on to our doubt in those times, to trust in you, to know that we are a justified child of God. And Lord, for those of us in this room right now that do not know you as Lord and Savior, may we make that move this morning. No more waiting, no more standing on the fence. We are gonna take that helmet that you are holding in front of us and we're gonna say, I want you, Jesus Christ. I am a sinner in need of a Savior and I want Christ. Lord, save me, we need to say. Lord, give us the courage to say that this morning. Give us the courage to tell someone that this morning. And most importantly, give us the courage to come before you and do that this morning, Lord God. We pray this powerfully in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.